This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My first guest on season five of One for the Road is a very special young lady indeed. She has a strong presence on social media, often just telling it how it is. And she has recently decided to stop drinking and talk about her journey in a really honest and authentic way. So I definitely feel extremely pleased she has decided to come on and share her story with us today. So please welcome... Cat Sims. So my special guest today on my podcast, One for the Road, is an absolute legend. We've met only once before and it feels like we know each other really well and that's the power of Instagram, right? Cat Sims, how the devil are you? I am doing brilliantly and thank you so much for asking me to be on your podcast. I have listened uh, and loved it. And I was always a bit like, should I just ask him? And then you asked me and it was fine. Well, you should have asked me. We could have got you on there quicker. But do you know what? The timing is perfect because three days ago, you celebrated a hundred days that we know in the sobriety world is the money spot because that's when you start to live your real potential with sobriety. Hundred well, days. It's good. It's it's good that you mentioned that because you never speak to anybody who gives up booze and goes, "Oh, I gave up alcohol and my life got shit." Like that doesn't happen. But I wouldn't say that the first sort of three months have been easy. And because I'm so impatient, I'm like, "Where is my life full of joy?" And obviously, it hasn't quite happened yet. So it's nice to know that a hundred days is maybe a bit of a turning point. Listen, I'm three years and I have bad days. Trust me. Well, you know, there is that. It's never linear. So let's wind it back a little bit. So yeah. where in your life did you recognize that drinking became an issue? Or was it always the fun thing to do? And then lockdown brought that on. Where was it? I always uh, drank unhealthily. 
um, because I grew up in a family that always drank unhealthily. And it was almost how we showed love, right? So we would never go, we'd never have a family Sunday dinner that was civilized. Everybody would end up completely shit-faced. And we would be, you know, and I remember being 13 and getting really drunk for the first time, like blackout drunk and waking up in the morning. And my mum and dad weren't mad at me. It was like almost a source of amusement. And I was like, I'm going to stay in bed. I feel awful. And they were like, no, you're going to get up. You're not ill. You've got a hangover. You get on with your day. And that was the lesson that they were teaching me. Not don't drink so much. You feel so sick. You can't get on with your day. Do that, but you still have to get up. And now I look back on that and I go, that's mental. But at the time, that was really, really normal. So now I can look back on it and go, actually, I always had addiction problems. You know, when I was eight years old, I used to wake up in the morning and steal all the Kit Kats from the fridge before anybody else was awake. And I would eat every single one. There was normally two packets, so 16 two-finger Kit Kats in there. And I would eat every single one and I would stuff all the wrappers down the side of the sofa. Now, if that isn't addictive behavior, like I don't know what is. And so I look at that and I go, actually, I've always had addictive behavior And so it was only a matter of time before the booze kicked in. But in terms of getting to a point where I was like, enough is enough on the booze front, I wouldn't say it ramp. I mean, it did ramp up during um, lockdown. But to be honest, there wasn't like a, a big rock bottom moment for me. You know, there had been huge moments that should have probably been my rock bottom beforehand. But actually, when I finally decided enough was enough, it was quite a high rock bottom. I was suffering from quite bad anxiety attacks at four o'clock in the morning because I was over drinking and waking up. And that was kind of the moment where I went, enough's enough. I've I've got my business to look after, my kids to look after. Now my parents, because obviously we're in that age bracket to look after. And I can't do it if this is how I'm going to be existing. You know, if I'm going to constantly be hungover or drunk or waiting for the next drink. I don't, I can't do it like that. And so my actual end was quite a high rock bottom, but it was a pretty messy journey along the way. I mean, when you were in your twenties and that, was it the usual, let's go clubbing and get drunk? And because it was almost like a badge of honor, wasn't it? On a Sunday, you would crawl out of bed and maybe go to the pub lunchtime. Well, I did. Yeah, totally. My twenties were total blackouts. That's how I drank. And that's, to be honest, that's how a lot of people I know drank. It wasn't just, you know, that was just the culture. But in my 30s, I remember getting, I was still getting blackout. And then I remember something awful. One of my worst moments happened when I was on blackout in my 30s. And I just had Bo. And it was something that severely put myself and her in danger. And I remember waking up and going, do you know what? That's not cool. And in fact, that was the first time I went to an AA meeting. That's probably about five years ago. And it was the worst experience of my life because I turned up to this AA meeting that I just Googled and it was just me and one other guy. And I was obviously like severely hungover and feeling the shame of all shames and didn't really honestly feel that safe in this room. So I never went back. Um, So then I decided this was how fucked up my thinking was. So then I decided, well, I'm not going to give up drinking because that's not the problem. The problem is the blackouts. So I'm going to not blackout anymore. And that and drugs are part of my story as well. And so that was when I discovered that if I mixed 
booze and drugs and certain drugs, then I wasn't going to get sloppy and I wasn't going to black out. So I was like, well, this is great. And I honestly, Dave, I think I thought like I'd solved the fucking riddle of life. I was like, well, this is fine. So I'll drink as much as I like. And if I do some Coke, then I won't get sloppy and I won't black out, but then I won't sleep. So I'll drop a Xanax and then I'll sleep. And I was like, well, this is, I've I've figured it all out. Mm. I'm a, I'm a genius. And that's kind of how I then existed for the next however many years. And it it just got to a point where that became, rather than once every now and again, that became every weekend. And then it became a couple of nights a week. And it was like, this is not, it's not going to get any better. This is not going to get any better. And I'm getting worse and worse and worse. I need to stop now. God, it's scary, isn't it? Mm. How we adapt to that. I mean, I was in the era, I suppose, where taking coke was just coming in but i never really went there because i was scared enough of my own drinking so i thought if i get into that as well that's going to be a double whammy for me but i know a lot of people that did and that's how they survived so for me about two in the morning i'll be absolutely zonked out and just need to go to bed where they were chucking a load of powder up their nose and carrying on and i know done it for days on end like just literally days yeah, I mean, I never did sort of days and days, but certainly my nights lasted until six, seven, eight in the morning. Um, you know, and at that point, Jimmy's like, I'm, Jimmy's like, where are you? You know, and the worry and the anxiety and the stress that he must have gone through, you know, I'll never, I don't think I'll ever be able to really make full amends for that because, you know, to know that those two kids at home as well, like it's just, it's just awful. And for me, looking back on it now, even now, you know, that little voice will still say to me, well, you didn't really have that much of a problem. You know, you can have a drink, you know, it's, you're not really an alcoholic. And then I think about that sort of stuff. And I think about the journey that I was very much on and the hill that I was very quickly sliding down and think, God, no, first of all, that voice wouldn't be there if I didn't have a problem. Like that's the, that voice is the problem. Mm. And so, you know, I have to, recognize that it is it's it's never I'm never going to be able to go back to drinking healthily because I never have drank healthily if I'm really honest I've never been a healthy drinker it's interesting what you say about the Kit Kat because mm. I've always said that I was just really greedy because my drinking was greedy you know I'd have one after the other after the other after that. nothing was ever enough and it, it got to a stage that I would even go to the off license after the pub to have more and more and more till I just blacked out yeah and my eating was like that in a way I would eat a whole apple pie yeah <laughs> we, we would get uh, that there's some really cheap apple pies in Sainsbury's but I love the pastry right and I'll get three <laughs> and the kids would go uh, and I'd eat like two with a load of ice cream and then wonder why I've put on weight. Do you know what I mean? I know. It's it's honestly, and and my eating is something I still have to work on because that behavior is still there. And I know that in early recovery, people are like, you know, don't worry too much about the sugar cravings. Just let's focus on the, the alcohol first. But I do see in the way I eat absolute parallels between the way I drank. And funnily enough, when I binge on the sugar, which is what I'm doing, like I'm not just, oh, I've got a sugar craving, I'll just have a couple of biscuits. I'm like, I've got a sugar craving. I'm going to eat a whole packet of digestives. When I've done that, the feeling of shame and remorse I have afterwards feels a lot like the feeling of shame and remorse I'd have after drinking. So as much as I'm like, okay, I've given myself some leeway with the Haribo and the digestives, actually, 
I'm trying to apply the same thought processes and and techniques to sugar as I do to alcohol and drugs. It's interesting when we talk about moderation as well, because you wouldn't say, do you know what, I'm just going to binge eat um, three packets of digestives at the weekend, but in the week I'm going to be really good because that <laughs> just doesn't make sense, does it? No, no, um, it doesn't. So I I know as well that you and Jimmy, who is just the loveliest man, um, a real legend, have had couples counselling. And was your drinking part of the reason why you perhaps got into a bit of trouble in your relationship? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd ha- have to say yes, absolutely. Was it the main reason? No, but it was a symptom of bigger problems, you know, like neither of us felt like we kept the other in mind for anything. And my willingness to go out and drink and not come back when I said I was going to come back and not bother to call or whatever was an example of that. Mm. Um, There were other examples as well. And there were examples of him not keeping me in mind too, but there's no doubt that it definitely had an impact. And of course, Jimmy doesn't drink and he never, I mean, he has drank, but never, never professionally uh, like myself. And he hasn't drank at all for about five years. So that was always a point of struggle uh, with us. And I know that Jimmy works on his own, in his own way to manage his relationships with people in his life who, who, you know, have addiction problems, not just me, you know, I'm sure there are other people too. So um, he very much took responsibility for his, side of the street in that and kind of left me to it. And so it definitely created at its best, it created distance between us and at its worst, definite conflict. The reason I say that is because you can look at the actual drinking as the problem, but there's so many layers to it, aren't there? You know? Yeah. It, I mean, I, I don't believe drink isn't the problem. Like, and I know that this is a quite a controversial thing to say, but for me, drink's not the problem. There was lots of times I had great nights on drink where I wasn't in danger or anything like that. And we all had a good time and went home. And there are loads of people who can enjoy alcohol in a really responsible way. I'm not one of them. The problem is with me. It's not because I am a bad person, but for whatever reason, whether it's emotional or something physical or biological, I cannot drink in a way that is healthy. And so for me, I have to look at, and therapy helped with this as well, I have to look at what it is, why I drink. And a lot of those reasons impact on my relationship. You know, that never feeling like you're good enough to be in a room, you know, you're not funny enough, you're not or feelings of worthiness or lack of it really affect your your role in a relationship, your dynamic. Um, you know, not feeling like you belong or like you have anybody. You know, of course, that's going to affect a relationship. So the things, the reasons I drank are what the real problem was rather than the drinking itself. Yeah, that makes total sense. And and you can come across as the funniest, loudest, biggest person in the whole room, but you're the loneliest. You know, for me, it was like that. I was always the Jack the Lag going in the pub and my nickname was Glugs. And it'd be Glugsy, he's in the house. And because they knew they would be up for a load of free rounds, a good time. They would go home and I wouldn't. And they'd come yeah. back later on, I'm still in there. 
Um, but I felt so lonely, desperate, um, go home and feel almost suicidal at times of, um, what am I like an actor that goes on a stage to perform? But I, then when I go back home, I'm a recluse in my mind. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and- because I think those people that you're searching for validation from when you're drinking and, and kind of create performing are actually not the people that are going to hold your hair back when you're puking. They're not the people that are going to be there for you. You know, there's a real, that, that whole relationship is built on alcohol and on that kind of uh, justification that if we're all in here together, then it, there's no problems. We don't have to talk about it. And actually, you know, I grew up essentially an only child. I do have brothers and sisters, but they're half brothers and sisters and they were much older than me and lived with either other parents or had already moved out. And so essentially I grew up an only child and I never felt like I had that relationship with anybody as a kid. You know, I, my, I was, my mum and dad were fine. My mum was kind of pretty miserable for the first 12, 13, 14 years of my life and drank alcoholically throughout those times. And so I had, I didn't really know how to interact. I didn't know how to form those bonds. I still struggle with forming those like connections and relationships that have that, that in which I can be properly vulnerable. You know, I would say really there's a, maybe two or three girls, girlfriends that I can do that with and Jimmy. I, I don't feel comfortable doing it because I didn't grow up in that. And so to not feel like you have any support or to have anybody to lean on or somebody who understands you can lead you down this path of thinking, well, I don't belong and I don't and I'm different to everybody. And drinking really helps mask all of that insecurity and all of those feelings, you know, and also when my mum drank alcoholically, I really, this was obviously well before I was drinking when I was five, six, seven, eight, I really struggled with that. And the shame and embarrassment I felt when my mum would be drunk in public because she was, I love her and bless her, she doesn't drink anymore. Not, not because of sobriety. She just doesn't really drink anymore. She would, I don't think she'd ever really think that she had a problem. And if it wasn't for her, then it, you know, it isn't. But for me, I really struggled. And I remember things like her falling asleep in her on her plate at dinner and like waking up with peas and school friends there on her face. And I just was absolutely mortified. And I took that shame on myself because I felt like that was a reflection of me, that my friends seeing that thought that that was me. Mm. And so even now, what I've realized is that now that I'm sober, I'm, I still feel that shame. That feeling has come back to me when I'm with other people who are really sloppily drunk. I still feel that embarrassment. I still feel that deep, deep seated shame. And it was really, and I hadn't felt that because what I figured out is that if I drank and I was drunk with everybody, then I didn't feel the shame. And so that's been a real ride to like feel feelings I haven't felt since I was 12, you know, so deeply and so viscerally. It's like, oh God, this is a lot of shit to work through. Oh, that, that's, that's powerful actually, because um, I'm actually doing a training course with Nakara at the moment because I feel there's a much needed conversation to be had as the alcoholic rather than as the child of an alcoholic. Um, and when I attended the first one the other night and I think I was the only drinker out of the whole of the people there. Um, and my input was really appreciated by people because it helped them understand. 
Yeah. Uh, and with my coaching as well, I quite often go straight in there and I ask them if they've got children, how old they are and how they feel their drinking affects their children. Because I'm, I don't hold back with that because I know how important that is for people to realize that from, from five years, four years old, five years to see their mum or dad having a glass of wine to relax to mm-hmm. after a bad day that and that's the constant thing being fed into them that oh this is what we need to do this is what you know and then to see a parent like what you say in front of your friends get that drunk that she wakes up with peas on her head is is a lot to deal with but <clears throat> another thing I was going to say with this all that stuff that you've got in there it's I always say there's a second phase of sobriety that what you're going through now, you have to kind of park. And I know it's difficult, but you have to park that and concentrate on what you're doing, which is giving up drinking, which you're amazing at. Because I think if you bring that stuff in, it's and you said in the beginning, you're really impatient. Yeah. Like me, you want it all done and dusted and swept up and what, but you have to really be boundaried around it and think, Do you know what? I need to get a good year under my belt to manage a, a new life, like walking again, social situations, so many situations, holidays, birthdays without alcohol. And then maybe after that, I can get support with all this other stuff because it's too heavy. Do you know what though? I don't feel any resentment or anger to my mum. I mean, I feel a lot of resentment and anger about a ton of stuff that I know I'm going to have to work through. But when it comes to my mum, I don't because God, I mean, I see her side of it now. Like she was she wasn't a single mum, but my dad worked away a lot. You know, I think their relationship wasn't great at times, certainly during that period. And she was really, really unhappy. And I can really relate, you know, God, I'm the one that's in AA now. And and my husband used to work away a lot. I drank a, a huge amount more when he was away. I found motherhood incredibly difficult. I feel nothing but empathy for my mum. There's no anger or resentment there for her at all but what I hadn't realized is that those feelings that I had so viscerally when I was little like I couldn't bear to be around her and I every time if I picked up the phone and she was on the phone and I'd know by the moment she said hello whether she'd had a drink or not and I would just have to hang up and I hadn't felt those feelings since I was 13 because I was drinking through them essentially and then to feel them again like I'd never like it was yesterday was like, oh gosh, that mm. I have to work on that. Mm. And that's my issue. Like I have to work on letting go of that idea that because other people around me are drunk, that it reflects on me, that it's my embarrassment, it's my shame. It's mm. not. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I never would have known that that was something I had to work on. That was like a secret kind of trauma that I was operating under that I didn't even know was there. Yeah. Until I gave up booze. I relate to that. I've got an analogy of an old suitcase and a loft and I open the lid and it's full of stuff from the past, like old newspaper cuttings and, you know, and, and I'm working on my book now and there's things coming up there that it's like, God, I, I completely forgot that. And one thing leads to the other. They're all locked away in these yeah. vaults from the past. And when they show themselves to you, it's like, what do I do with this? Because normally I would self-medicate to, Stop me thinking about it. Yeah. So you, you've you gone down the um, route of AA. 
Yeah. Um, and when I went, it's a really interesting conversation, Mike, because this is why this journey goes on and on and on. And I'm learning so much about my own things. I, I initially went to AA and after three or four meetings, pro- probably five, I actually wanted to go to the pub because I felt this really isn't for me. And what I've learned since then, talking to people like Bryony Gordon, looking Who at- I spoke to at the weekend, actually. Oh, yeah, we spoke yesterday. And uh, it's not a competition, by the way. I was way. about to say. Uh, <laughs> she's a better friend to me than you. She um, is. I've literally met her once. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and I realised actually that it could have just been the wrong meeting that I went to. It, it, the chemistry in the room might have been wrong and whatever. And, and I have said to Bryony that I'm going to go with her to a meeting because I think it's so important to see all, all angles of how people recover with this, you know. I mean, AA felt like a natural uh, step for me because I have a lot of friends who are in various fellowships. You know, I, I, I felt like I had a base knowledge of it. And so it just made sense. And, and also, you know, I just remember on the first meeting I went to, I was so desperate. I was like... I'm not going to sit here and start. I don't have time to research it. I'm just going to go to where I know is definitely a meeting. And so I did AA and, you know, it isn't, it, listen, is it, is the language in there a bit dated? Is the philosophy in there not out of date, but is it dated? Sure. You know, do you have to decide whether you're going to take every single word literally or whether you're going to use it to your own, like, you know, God, for example, there's a lot of God stuff in there. Um, they are quite clear to make sure you do that. You sort of understand, however you understand that. But for me, I was like, okay, well, I can replace God with the universe because I've always spoken to the universe and asked the universe for help or whatever. And I can do that, you know, in the powerlessness, I know a lot of people have a problem with that idea. And for me, that was really essential. Like I didn't like it, but I knew that I had to accept that this was one thing I wasn't good at because I had grown up my whole life being told you have to be good at everything, straight A's, da, 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 da. And I did it. Like I I did it because I had to be the kid. Both my parents came from failed marriages before they wanted me to be the kid that was like, look, that proved that like, look, we're not total fuck up. She's brilliant. And so I, I played into that role. And so it was very, very difficult for me to go, well, I don't want to admit that I'm not good at this, that I can't do this. But actually that humility for me was really essential in actually recognizing that this was a problem. And I needed this. I'm egotistical. I think anybody who stands up and creates a load of content and performs daily and does what we do has an ego. Um, And I had to really challenge that. And accepting the word powerless in that was really important to me. I didn't like it. I still don't love it. I still don't like saying I'm an alcoholic, but I also know that repeating it is important because it that word is so imbued with shame. And actually, every time I say it, I want I try and say it with like pride and joy and a smile on my face, because actually that I believe is what's going to take me to a better next stage of my life. And without it, I wouldn't, you know, without being able to say that word, I wouldn't be able to do that. So I have, and, and with, I've never been to a place to like, a, like an AA meeting where there is absolutely nothing but total empathy and understanding. Like the things that you can admit to 
in an AA meeting. You know, people can go in and say and talk about how, you know, they smacked their child when they were drunk. Like nobody's condoning that. But we all sit there with our own demons and our own shit stuff that we've done. And in this world where there is a distinct lack of safe spaces to talk about the worst possible parts of yourself, that's what I cherish AA for because it is a completely safe space. And and right now in this day and age, there are very few of those. Powerful. And also when I went, it was the actual environment, the surroundings that I absolutely felt safe with as well, walking into a church. I mean, I don't go to church. I'm like you. I believe in the universe. I feel like I'm going to set on fire every time I I walk into a church. But I mean, there's a lot of people I talk to, you know, when you hear people's stories and things and they're like, you know, I walked into when I first came to AA, you know, I, I left because I didn't like the acoustics or, you know, and and they're all like, you know, I was finding a million reasons not to like, it. I can sit there and go, why am I sat in this dusty church hall? But actually I do a lot of Zoom meetings and I find those really powerful. So that, I mean, I think Zoom lockdown has been, has, has opened up a space in AA for people that perhaps felt very uncomfortable. I think mm. it's made it way more accessible, but I have been going to live meetings as well. And, you know, they are, if you get a good one, it's brilliant. But it's interesting what you say, though, Kat, about um, the word alcoholic, because I know that it works for a lot of people that they it helps them to identify to that where I absolutely hate that label. I hate it and I, I struggle with it. And I've thought about this. It's like we, we walk down the high street together, you and me, and we uh, have a coffee. Then we go into a clothes shop. And actually, I think I don't. This is not for me. So I, I find another one. Yeah. Where for you, it's the same. It, it, what works for you might not work for. hundred percent. You know, whatever it takes, like whatever it works and whatever it takes to, to help anybody is good. There isn't one method of recovery or whatever that's better than another. It's the best recovery is the one. The best program or, or system is the one that works for you. And that's why. When I went to the AA meetings, there's a woman there. I think her name was Maud. I'm making that up. <laughs> um, it was from her era. She was quite old, nearly as old as me. And, and she got <laughs> up and she'd been sober 30 years. And she said, hello, my name is Maud and I'm an alcoholic. And then I found out she'd been um, sober 30 years. And I thought, God, that is proof that that has worked for her. Every day she went to a meeting, maybe two. Uh, and she said, you know, my recovery, this will go. And for me, it was like, I, I don't know if that's going to work for me, this recovery business. It's like, so that's why I say it's discovery because when I stop drinking, I rip the blinkers off, right? And, and all of a sudden it's like, God, what is this around me, this view? And discovery feels more positive for me. It feels like, and that's what works for me. And the alcoholic, which I think until the end of time, there will always be, a conversation about that word but I just that doesn't work for me so I don't use it um, and I'm probably yet to think of what I can use um, I was dependent on alcohol and now I choose not to drink I don't know you know whatever it is yeah but that doesn't work for me and that's how it is it's I mean it's it, like you say it's exactly how whatever works I sort of think of it a bit like being a celiac now and and I'm like, listen, if I was told I was a celiac and I couldn't eat wheat, I wouldn't eat wheat. You know, I'm an alcoholic and I can't drink alcohol, so I'm not going to drink alcohol. And 
you know, they do talk about it being an allergy. I I struggle with that word. I struggle with that concept. Um, Or I did struggle. I mean, I do think that there is some sort of biological, physiological thing in some people that means that they are prone to addiction. They are prone to a craving that cannot be stopped because, you know, you see people who do drink normally and uh, with moderation and responsibly whether or not they've got trauma, people who go through hugely traumatic period uh, childhoods and don't end up addicts or alcoholics. So there must be some sort of physiological, biological issue. So being able, to, that's not all of it, but being able to go, listen, my body just doesn't, there's something in there that just means I'm never going to be able to drink safely because I can deal with trauma, but I'm probably still going to drink alcoholically if I picked up a drink again. And so for me, I'm like, do you know what, if I just look at alcoholic, like, this is a term that helps me go, my body's not built for this. Mm. That I find quite helpful. But I think the problem is it's not really, it's what everybody thinks of when they think of alcoholic that makes us resistant to that word. Mm. You know, and I think this is for me, one of the things that I really love to talk about is that I, when I first went into AA or when I first decided to identify as an alcoholic, I had a vision of what an alcoholic was and it's not very PC and it's not very woke, but it was a man on a park bench. That's what I thought an alcoholic was. And they were red faced and ruddy and, you know, haggard and all of this stuff. And actually what I've realized is that when I go into a meeting, there are those people there. Absolutely. But actually the majority of people are mums, grandmas, working men, professional women, you know, it's everybody. And so if me talking up and being and embracing the word alcoholic can reduce the shame associated with that word so that somebody else might go, actually, maybe that is what I am and be able to confront that, then that for me is really key because I go into those rooms and I think, God, if everybody could see who's in here, if people could actually see, obviously you can't because of the anonymity, but if we could just go, look, look, this is who's here. So many more people, I think, would find, seek help and find help. Because I think the shame of that word stops so many people from asking for help. That's I, I did um, a coaching course with Jolene Park, who um, came up with a thing, the grey area drinking, which... Yeah. Since I've done that, that helps the stigma around that word because so many people fit in that bracket. There are people that can take or leave a drink, not bothered, they might drink at Christmas, might drink at a wedding. And there are people that don't reach a rock bottom. Yeah. But there are lots of people that try and uh, stop drinking, <laughs> but they can't. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of people that all their friends say, you haven't got a problem with drinking, but you know you have. I mean, so- I got that all the time. Yeah. You know, I had people go, you're not an alcoholic. And I was like, well, the thing is, there's no definition. There's no checkbox that says to be an alcoholic, you have to be drinking in the mornings, be hiding bottles in the linen cupboard, uh, you know, have crashed a car, ended up in, woken up in a jail cell. You know, there's no checkbox. But with alcohol, the best alcohol is never going to do you any good. Like it might, the best you can hope for is that it's not going to harm you that much. But it's it, nobody's ever going to get healthy or, um, benefit from drinking alcohol you may be able to drink it and do no damage but it's not ever going to be good for you so you know if you're drinking in a way that makes you feel unhealthy or unhappy or all of those things 
then maybe, you know, if we can broaden that, that definition of what an alcoholic is beyond what we've decided it is, that would give a lot of people more empowerment to go, do you know what, maybe I do need to stop. But yeah, it is. So as, as uncomfortable as I find that word, and I do, you know, of course I do. It's sort of something that I'm trying to just embrace and, and go, do you know what, I'm, I've got to be proud of this because it's taking me somewhere that I know is a better place. Mm. There's always a conversation as well about you don't know that you won't drink again, which is said to me quite often. Uh, and in my heart, of all hearts, 95%, I don't think I will, but there's, you know, you have to have the 5% held back. But how do you feel after 100 days? I don't know. I'm still quite new. And obviously, you know, it's, but I hear every meeting one day at a time. And so, I don't know. I do. Sometimes my mind does wander off into that space of God. I'm ne- am I never going to drink again? You know, I think of, and then I start thinking of scenarios where I'm really going to want to drink. Like, you know, when I'm on holiday on a beach or, you know, if I'm in a seafood restaurant and all I want is a glass of cold white wine. And I try not to go there because, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, if I just think for today, I'm not going to drink, then that's what I do. And also the more time I rack up, the more I don't want to go back to zero. Yeah. But in my heart of hearts, I know I don't want to drink again. A hundred percent. I know I don't want to drink again. And so I guess I just have to hold on to that and, and, and hope that if I keep reminding myself of that every day, then I never will drink again. But yeah, I'd be lying if I said, it didn't scare the shit out of me when I thought about never having another drink for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, I get that. And and do you know what? It's only till recently that I, I sort of really thought about this. Uh, and you do have to go through a grieving process because I do think it's like you can relate it to an ex-partner that you still love, but you hate. It's an odd codependent relationship that that you know you wake up in the morning and you're like oh I hate you you've done it to me again well actually you've done it but throughout the day the voice comes in oh yeah. I can have one I did a post the other day about it maybe I can just have one that's the wine which coming in and whatever um but you have to grieve it because it's a part of your life you have to let go it, it, it it's like moving area or emigrating or whatever you're always going to have fond memories of where you lived but you also, it, you have to deal with it. The well, grief. And it's, it's not just a part of my life. Like I look back on it. I've been drinking since I was 13. So we're talking like 27 years. This is like oh, well over half of my life. Mm. I have existed as a drinker. And so I'm still very much struggling in social situations to figure out who and how I, who I am and how I act socially without being drunk. I mean, I can walk into a room and be personable and fun and charming, but I find it exhausting. Also, can we just talk about how loud (laughs) fucking parties and events are when you are not drinking? What the actual fuck is that all about? (laughs) It's so loud. So, because it's just a barrage of noise. It's not just like a gig where it's like loud noise, like music, one song, that's fine but it's all the chatter, the music, the glasses, the feet, the dancing, the whooping. I'm like, I I cannot cope with this. And I've realized how triggering I find that. That is exhausting. Do you know what? It's really interesting you say that. Because as well, I always say about the volume button. Imagine your ear roll was a volume button, right? And you turn it up and down. So I'm a massive overthinker. And 
a lot of people with problems with alcohol are, and when they have their first couple of drinks, it turns the volume down. Huge. Right? And it's the same when you go out because you sort of merge into that environment, don't you, when you're drinking and you're going along like on a wave. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, when and it you... becomes muffled, right? Everything yeah. just sort of becomes a bit muffled. And it's, it, it, I honestly keep coming back home from like events and saying to Jimmy, I, I, the noise is just so much. It feels almost painful. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's one of those things that he's like, yeah, laughing, smug, sober guy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, he's not really. I'm, obviously, he's the nicest human on the, who's ever walked the face of the fucking planet. But, I am. Um, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the noise just. I know. Well, me and Em were in Soho, um, the new one in um, the Strand, 180, the Strand. Yeah. Right. And, and the music, like, how are you meant to have a conversation with that? Like, I was like a grumpy old man. I was like, oh, can you turn it down a little bit? Because it wasn't just the people around me laughing. And maybe it's a bit of jealousy. I don't know. The heads knocking back oh, <laughs> with their pints. Yeah. I'm sitting there like bloody grumpy old git. But um, it wasn't that. It, it is the volume. And you ask Em, she, I drive her mad with, with noise. I, I'm so oversensitive now me to too. noise. It's it's not bearable to live with, in fact. But also, you sort of say, is it the jealousy? I don't know if it is. I am starting to wonder how much I enjoyed things because they were actually enjoyable or because it was an excuse to drink. So things like going, I used to say, I mean, I always used to hate nightclubs and I used to say, I just love going for dinner and sitting there for hours and chatting and having long, I used to hate restaurants that like ushered you out. Now though... I get to the end of a meal. I'm like, I do not want to sit here and just chat for hours and hours and hours. Like, come on, let's move on. I'm out. <laughs> I'm done. And and Sunday lunches as well. I was like, oh, let's go to the pub for a Sunday lunch. I love having a pub and a Sunday lunch. Now I'm like, actually, I'd far rather cook a Sunday lunch at home because of the noise and this, that and the other. But once I was in a pub, I could drink. Yeah. And so, you know, there's certain things and things like going out to nightclubs. I'm like, yeah, that's just not fun for me. If I'm if I'm not there to get shit face. So mm. there are lots of things now that I am questioning whether I actually like them or whether it was just a really good excuse to be able to drink without kind of restriction. This is why this journey is so fascinating because it flags up so many questions. Yeah. And that's why when you talk to someone who's been on the same road, it's like you'll get it. You know, it, but like if you was talking to me now about gambling, I wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. No. So I, I don't get it. But no, it's weird. It's like parenting. You know, you can't ever know what that's like until they arrive. And it's, um, but you know, it isn't easy. And I think I, as a newcomer, I got really not sort of sick of, but I guess uh, I, I found it unrelatable when people were like, my life is nothing like I thought it ever could be. And I have all this stuff and this now and not like stuff, but like, you know, relationships and this. And and as a newcomer, sometimes you're like, okay, I still feel like shit. Like I still feel like I really want to drink and now I'm not drinking. I'm now all these feelings of insecurity and inferiority and imposter syndrome and all of these things are back with a vengeance. Like when does that end? And actually now that I'm 103, I start to see that. I do start to see it lifting, but it is a process. And, you know, when I think I've drunk for 27 years badly, 
of course, it's going to take time to undo all of that and unpick that and let that muscle atrophy while I build up other muscles. So it is, you know, it is a process, but I'm incredibly lucky. I've had, you know, Jimmy's super supportive, you know, like you, I've been very open about my kind of sobriety and issues and things and addiction issues. So, and that I found really, really helpful because I'm not one of those people that can I can't keep, I can't lie. I can't keep that stuff to myself. And I know that a lot of people will like, be careful. You really think carefully about you before breaking your own anonymity and and going out there. And I'm like, but what am I going to say if I don't drink? Like if I turn up and don't drink, am I going to say, oh, I'm just on antibiotics or, you know, I have to say this because I never turned up and didn't drink even on antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just not going to make any sense if I don't, own this and go listen I'm sober now so yeah hopefully do you know what though when uh the the sober community is so tight it's incredible and when I first found out I think I commented on one of your posts and uh, I said simply why did I not know this because I (laughs) I didn't but I mean this with all my heart when I heard that you had made that public I was so made up because you are an incredible influence on so many people with what you do and I thought this is fantastic because there's this era of mid-30s to late 40s people that are really really looking at their relationship with alcohol and for me it's people are like growing up that they're they're really starting to question it I think lockdown has a lot to do with it where all of a sudden that's made them have the time and space to get off the hamster wheel and think god what does my relationship with alcohol look like now where I'm at home I'm I know people that have done zooms with coffee cups and it's had wine in you know and then there was the house party that you know this time a couple of years ago it was hot yeah. In fact, when we went in, and the house parties, I said to him, what is all this? Six o'clock business, everyone in the garden, bikini, drinking. It's like, oh, this is really. It's really hard, isn't it? Because it's like a lot, there's a lot of chat around, because obviously I work quite a lot in the parenting space. So there's a lot of chat around this kind of wine o'clock and mummy drinking culture and all the rest of it. And I think I did um, an Instagram live with Matt um, Pink. Pink. Yeah. And, you know, he said, how do you feel about this? And it's. For me, it's something that I have to, I, given any chance to pin the blame for my drinking on anything or anybody else, I absolutely fucking will. Like a hundred percent. That is my default. So I can't sit here and say that wine o'clock and mummy drinking culture was responsible for my drinking. Like I, I just can't, because if I do that, then I'm all sorts of, I'm in all sorts of trouble. I Mm. have to sit here and focus completely on the fact that I was the one that chose to drink like I did. Subconsciously fueled by trauma, whatever it is, fine. But I made a choice every single time I picked up a drink to drink it. And there are people who see wine o'clock and all the rest of it and don't drink. So for me, I have to make that personal boundary really, really clear. And also people do drink it's annoying, but some people can fucking drink in moderation and they can have a drink. And I feel like, do you know what? Go ahead, celebrate that out, that drink that you're having in moderation on the beat, on the, in the garden, your bikini, knock yourself out. It's irritating, but good on you. Like, you know, I can, 
I can try and develop some fraud and fraud in there. But it's it's one of those things where we just I have to take responsibility for myself only. I can't make everybody else. I can't blame wine o'clock. I can't blame, you know, whatever it is. I just have to go, look, it's me. And this is my choice every day now not to drink, regardless of what I see and hear. I have to fucking dig deep and not do it. And and it's really hard because it's everywhere you look as well. You know, everywhere. Yeah. I was down in a tube station the other day and there's this big billboard there and it was the perfect scenario. You know, everyone was size 10 in a lovely by pool in Italy and they've all got a Campari uh, and it was painted to be this perfect scenario. Not that two out of the six probably would go and drink a bottle of wine that's hidden under the bed and stuff, you know. So it's – and the, the personal journey continues. So for me, like now, I've I've kind of made my peace with it. Yeah. In the beginning, I was like – it was like, woo, woo, woo. Yeah. Like everywhere I was like, oh, my God, how cold this, how cold that, I hate you. And I was like an activist walking up and down Northcote Road – uh, with a sandwich board and and whatever, but now it's um, I think it's because I've accepted myself a lot more. I know who I am, which is completely different to what I thought I was. I know. Well, and also it's resentment, right? Because I find that's you know when I see that advert, I'm like pissed off. I'm like fuck. Like it's not fair that they get to do that and I don't. Like yeah. that's how I feel, and I'm jealous and I'm envious and I'm. Like it's not good feelings. And so I've in all sorts of things, not just in seeing those kind of images, but recognizing those feelings that are start as resentment that then very, very quickly transform into something else much more justifiable, you know, like whether it's activism or this isn't right, or I'm doing this for other people. Actually, I looked at those and went, I'm just really pissed off that I can't do that. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's why I fucking hate this shit. Like that just pisses yeah. me off. It's not because there's anything necessarily wrong with it because, you know, you can hear it in my voice when I talk about people who can drink in moderation. Fucking people can drink in moderation. Like yeah, yeah. that resentment is there. And so I have to really keep a check on what is actually real and what is me just trying to justify my own fucking. Yeah. Issue. But there's, there's another side to it as well. Uh, I, I found out the other day that apparently in the UK, £68 billion is spent on marketing, right? And that kind of marketing paints a picture to you that that is normal when alcohol is deadly, toxic, addictive drug. And that's what annoys me more now than actually, oh, I'm jealous of that, I'm jealous of that. You know, it, it's like the the constant brainwashing we're fed that mm. alcohol relieves anxiety, you know, socially acceptable. It's the only drug you have to justify not having and all that business. It, it kind of, Agreed. that really annoys me now. I do. And I a hundred percent agree, but I also think it's just a small part of the problem. Like, to be honest, my perception of alcohol as, you know, a calm, a, a calm, a calmer downer, if that was, that's not obviously. Is that an addiction? Kind of yeah. <laughs> calmer downer. Listen, I'm still trying to, my synapses are still rebonding after all the fucking damage I've done. Um, I, that came from my family. Like that was the biggest influence on me, how my family drank, how my parents drank, how I saw everybody around me. That 
influenced my perception of alcohol and what it did and what it was for far more as a, than any advertising I did. And yes, it all is all part of the same problem mm-hmm. because it's hard to break that if the, if the advertising machine is still working. But, you know, I still believe if there was no advertising, an alcoholic would still seek out the booze regardless. And so it's this, you know, at the end of the day, all of this stuff is a real problem, but we have to make it safer and more acceptable for individuals to question their own drinking and to put their hand up and go, I might have a problem. Yeah. We, I think that is the point at which change is really, really going to happen. If we can make it less icky and less get rid of that stereotype of what alcoholic means and represents and all the rest of it. I think if we can empower individuals to do that, then inevitably the advertising will have less hold, you know, less impact. And so that's kind of what, if I do anything regarding or around sobriety in. Sorry, I'm having trouble hearing you. Sorry, my watch is now talking to Uh, me. You need to speak louder. That's That's what I know. Ironic. There's a universe right there. I know, but also, like, who's ever told me to be louder? Um, uh, <laughs> that's what I'd like to do is is make that word alcoholic and asking for, for help less shameful. And you're in the perfect space to do it because, as I said earlier, like, I don't think I know anyone that doesn't love you. I, I mean that. Oh, I, um, could, I can find you a list. Yeah, sure. well, probably on that bloody website. direct you website. to a website. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can't even look on it and see if I'm on it. I just don't want to know. But um, it's all rubbish anyway. But any, the, the fact is, right, it's, it's all about us people banging the drum in an authentic way with integrity, um, non-judgmental, hopefully, to say, look, it is completely okay to admit that I got myself in trouble with alcohol and I've done something about it and here I am maybe trying to put a message out there that you can think about it to start the process going. Uh, yeah. and, and that's all it is. Well, and you like have been doing that for so long in a way that is so impressive. Like part of part of my ability to be able to talk about it was based on seeing you talk about it. Like I was like, look, if he can do it, surely I can do it. But, you know, the fear is there and you burst through that before a lot of people so you know thank you for that Dave oh it's I remember when we met at the um event it was a cinema we met the cousin in Mayfair which funnily enough I was at yesterday and turned around to Jimmy and said do you remember this is where we met Emma and Dave and you were in the VIP section and we were the (laughs) peasants in the uh entrance uh I remember you bowling over with a huge glass of wine and you said you know what I love your Instagram it's like, why, thank you. <laughs> but, Love your Instagram. Clearly uh, not interested much. in actually yeah. taking anything in. <laughs> Do you know what? I could talk to you forever. Oh, Dave, I bet you say that to all No, I don't. Let's go away <laughs> to um, the Bahamas for a month. Jimmy can play his guitar. Yeah. Em can write some poetry. And we can yeah. all lay in hammocks. Yeah. And have a blipping good time. I am here for that. I cannot wait to get some sunshine. I know. 
Oh, well, look, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. I'm so grateful that you come onto this podcast and I think your message is amazing. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to really, really get what you've said today. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me and thank you for doing everything that you do on Instagram for the sober community. It's, um, it really is impressive and helpful. Thank you. I'm going to take that as well. Do it. Take it. <laughs> Thanks, Kat. See you no soon. Worries. See you later. Bye. 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 I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.